All right, brothers and sisters, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 as we continue. We will be reading verses 13 through 20. Since the Reformation, one of the more controversial passages in the, in the New Testament, really. Um, but we'll... The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for sending your son, for revealing him to be the Christ, and for giving him post-resurrection the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, the name of Lord. Father, we ask that we would be faithful to your word and to what you have instituted in it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, here we are at Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, and, and we are at a key transition point in this gospel. From the beginning until now, Jesus has engaged in a very public ministry, and there's been lots of people utter lots of things about who Jesus might be, but now it all comes to a point, and Jesus wants to know, based on everything, who do you say that I am? And then at this point, the gospel makes a, a transition itself, and you're going to see that in, um, in the very next section, he immediately now introduces the topic that's going to challenge and transform their understanding of what it means for him to be the Christ, 
the kind of mission that God sent him upon, namely one to die. And that, and that shatters every expectation. But then Jesus goes further by saying not only did he come to die, but anyone who would follow him must take up their cross. And so he starts ratcheting up the demands of discipleship and he's focusing on the disciples and it's very shortly after this we've, we've fast forwarded through time and he's going to be on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus, here in these, past, in these words here today, does a remarkable job of, of transitioning from one understanding of what constituted the kingdom of God to another. He does a, a remarkable job of introducing some of the themes that are going to be developed in the rest of the gospel and throughout the book of Acts and then into the entire epistoly, epistoly, epistolary section of the New Testament. But first and foremost, we have to see that this passage follows a flow. It begins with a, a question that issues forth a confession. And this confession then leads to a pronouncement about the very nature of the church and the kingdom and authority within it. So in these words here, we start seeing Jesus not just the prophet of the kingdom, not just the, 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 in the abstract Lord, but here you start seeing Jesus speaking as the king of the kingdom who's going to be giving authority and implicitly taking authority away. This passage is very instrumental because throughout much of the Middle Ages, despite uh, the early church fathers, famously Augustine in his retractions, uh, denying that this passage is, is teaching any sort of preeminence to the Bishop of Rome as, as a successor to, to Peter. Nonetheless, Institutions don't like things like that, so for several hundred years, the, the institution said, oh yes, this is about Peter, and this is about his successors as the bishops of Rome, and, and the Reformation put a lot of energy into who is the rock, what is the rock, and what does it mean to have the gates of, uh, and, and, and the keys, and what's all this going on, and what's oftentimes missed in all of that discussion is that we have a Lord who is a king who has set up a kingdom in his stead and it was founded upon and it is perpetuated by people acting in his name. The church, brothers and sisters, is a big deal. Now I realize that that is a hard sell to Americans in the early 21st century. We are autonomous creatures each of us is self-wise. We, we, if I were to have the audacity to confront you about anything in your life, or if an elder were to confront you, the very confrontation would be deemed by you almost certainly as inappropriate. You'd quibble over word choices. You, you would. We have lost the sense that we 
are sheep needing to be shepherded, and Christ has appointed shepherds. That, that, that thought is just banished from our mind. I'm, what are you talking? You shepherd me by talking at me from the front, but don't you get into my business. That's how we are. And the rise of the parachurch movement makes, makes us all think that there's no fundamental distinction between a chapel service at a Christian school or a, or a, or a, or a conference and the church. And there is a difference. And so, this passage we see Jesus the King both question, institute, and commission. So he begins with this question. In verses 13 to 15, we see it. Now, there are many important questions in life, are there not? Some of them. Determine your short-term state of well-being. Do you know why I pulled you over? Be careful in how you answer. Some of them put us under incredible obligation. Do you take this oath freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion? Some oaths, some questions, if you answer, will change your life. Do you take this man or this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife or husband? If you say yes, your life is changed. And you'll find that that piece of paper has teeth. Questions. But we see here that Jesus is also asking questions. And in fact, he's asking the question that if you get down to the core of it, it is the single most important question with which one of us can be confronted. Who do you say that I am? He begins his question in the, in the, in the third person abstract. Who do people say that the Son of Man is. And he's not asking a hypothetical about who do they think the, the Son of Man as an abstract concept will be because we see that in verse uh, 15, he says, the contrastive but, who do you say I, I, I am? So what we're seeing is that the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is, is a synonymous statement with who do people say that I am? And remember, Jesus always, almost always refers to himself as the Son of Man. Famously from Daniel 7, 14, this, this ruler who is presented with a dominion and, and all the kingdoms of the world are brought into subjection underneath him. And that is the great picture that the first century Jews had. It's the picture that we see in a few verses Peter has. That the Son of Man is a triumphant Conquering Christ. Who do people say that I am? And they say, I, I don't know why they didn't. Well, some, some are saying you're a demon-possessed man. Some are saying, you know, you're, you're in league with the devil. They didn't talk about those. They talk about the people that are saying positive things. Some say you're John the Baptist. Understand, they don't, 
they don't mean by that, that that there's a lot of people thinking that John the Baptist was raised from the dead. No. Go back 2,000 years. They didn't have pictures. They didn't have news stories. They didn't have newscasts. All they had was word of mouth. So chances are they'd heard that there's this wild-eyed preacher sticking it to the man. Jesus would roll into town and without knowing who he, is this the John the Baptist we'd heard about? Or maybe it's Elijah. And the reason for that is because of Malachi, that the prophecy was that, the, that, that Elijah, not a reincarnation per se, but, but someone in that manner, in that likeness, in that model and mode, or, or, maybe, or maybe Jeremiah, someone not quite as cataclysmic as, as Elijah, but still someone of, someone of gravitas. And, and read Jeremiah. I've said this many times. It's incredible to read Jeremiah. The people recognized him to be a prophet. And they, and they would continually have him come and, and, and tell them what's going to happen. And as soon as he said what they didn't want to hear, they'd beat him up or try to kill him. But they still recognized him to be a prophet. It's, in, it's incredible. You see the insanity of wickedness there. But, but maybe Jesus is someone in that paradigm. Now notice, everybody out there is thinking a positive thing about Jesus. He's someone of importance. And brothers and sisters, there's a whole lot of people out there who are thinking that Jesus is someone of importance. He's a righteous dude. Jesus is just all right. But that's not enough. And so Jesus then wants to turn it in on them. And in that we see that he's turning it in on us. And the, the Greek is super emphatic. You is there twice. And it's in the first person. So it's like he's saying, you, but you, who do you think that I am? He really wants your thoughts on this. Who do you say that I am? Beloved, your life hangs in the balance. How you answer that question determines your destiny forever and ever. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks each of us. You cannot ignore him. You cannot play for time. You cannot negotiate, bribe, or threaten. You can only answer. Who do you say that I am? In the end, understand that your answer to that question is, is just as this section is, is the, the pivot point in the gospel where things change, your answer to that question is the pivot point of your life. Before that, everything is characterized by the old man. Yes, yes, God in his sovereign decree loved you from eternity past and he was with you even through, yes, yes, yes. But in terms of your apprehension of every good thing, that moment of confession of Christ 
is the pivot point where you pass from death into life. And so how you answer determines whether that pivot happens or whether a trajectory is continued. And it's a trajectory that ends only in death. So if you have not answered him, do so. Confess, as Simon here confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, that confession is essentially the core confession of the church. Acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that he is Lord, that is the core Christian confession And brothers and sisters, Peter was all too, all too ready to answer. And that's astonishingly beautiful. I love the character of Peter. Because of all the apostles, to me, he's, he's, he's the most me-like. He's, he's gregarious, and he's, willing to, and he's willing to speak and do. That means he puts his foot in his mouth but he's not willing to just stand there on the side. He's not perfect. None of us are. So I think with Peter, we can resonate. Now, please note that in verse 13, he asks his disciples, so he's asking a group. The question is directed to a plurality of people. And then in verse 14, this plurality of people responds. So he asks the group, who do the people say that I am? And, and it says they replied. So in other words, you get a group response. And there's a reason why this is important. And then he says in verse 15, all right, but who do you say that I am? And, and he's still talking to the group. It's second person plural. Who do you you? Say that I am. And then Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And with this confession, we don't, don't please don't think that Peter fully comprehended Jesus. And in fact, this, is, this gives you the creeps. But when you look at the confessions of the demons, there's not much difference in confession. Now the demons had supernatural apprehension because they knew. And Jesus commands them to keep quiet. But this is the first full-throated acknowledgement of the messiahship and the status of Jesus from the lips of a human. And the son of God part, understand that he's praised here because he's, his words encapsulate something that's going to be fleshed out. But I don't believe that at this point he understood the full content of what he was saying. Because, for example, in Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed is called, you are my son, and in and, 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 and Jewish literature, God's son doesn't 
that phrase doesn't mean second person of the Trinity co-equal with the Father. It means someone in a special relationship to, the, to God. But he uses words that are going to be revealed to have more meaning. And, and he doesn't, so he speaks truly and rightly, even if he doesn't quite understand. But we are going to see next week that, that he didn't rightly comprehend what he was saying and that's going to be super important. But nonetheless, Peter speaks. It's interesting. He addresses a group. Previously, having addressed a group, the group responded. But here, the group doesn't respond. Peter responds. That's really important. Some people want to dismiss the uniqueness of what Peter says here. Oh, he's, he's speaking for the group. Uh, they didn't have a huddle. They didn't have a huddle, all right, Peter, no, Peter spoke, which is why Peter is praised, and, and, and the blessing is given precisely because the answer didn't come as the result of, of a consensus amongst the disciples. The, the answer came because God the Father had gifted him. And we see in that a very important truth that is also fleshed out in Scripture, is it not? That no one can rightly understand Jesus or receive him if the Father doesn't draw him. Is that not throughout Scripture? And so th this is why we should pray for people's eyes to be opened. We should pray for the Spirit to move, to unstop their ears, because if left to themselves, human deduction won't get them there. Apprehending Christ truly requires supernatural intervention in our lives, and so pray. And don't think haughty of oneself for believing, because it was not you who figured it out. It was God who blessed you with the insight. And then in his blessing of Peter, we see the establishment language here of the church. He says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Okay, that, that he's using a pun here, of course. He, he changes Peter's, he changes Simon's name to Simon Peter, and Peter, of course, is, is uh, the Greek transliteration of, of the Aramaic Cephas, which means rock, and on this rock, I'll build my church, and a lot of ink has been spilled. Well, the word Petros, because that's a name of a man, is masculine, and the word Petra is, is, is feminine, so it can't be the same thing. Lots of languages have gendered nouns. And, and, and when you're referring to a person, a man, you don't call him by the feminine form of the word. You call him by the mask. I mean, come on. Don't get hung up on that. What we should recognize, and thankfully, now that the heat of the Reformation has died, most scholars are willing to accept what is obviously here. He's addressing Peter. The pronouns... He's at no point in this until verse 20 does he stop addressing Peter with the singular second person, you. 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 Peter. 
On this rock, I will build my church. Now, understand this. When it says that he's going to build his church, sometimes I think that some in our tradition minimize the significance of this passage because we like to, to speak of the, the old covenant church as, as if it's basically one and the same. No one was going around before this singing praises to Jesus. What he means here is now the people of God are going to be formed in his name. And instead of, of hoping in, in what the, the New Testament reveals was, what was kind of a hazy picture of the coming Messiah, now we would have a, a crystal clear that our sins have been atoned by the Son of God on our behalf and the, and the Spirit has been poured out at his behest. This church is going to be built. Now, this, this foundational aspect, um, metaphors are tricky because the, the context of a metaphor determines the entity to which it points. And, and so, for example, there's, there's lots of things, I, I don't mean to, uh, but there's lots of things in the New Testament that are metaphorically referred to as the, the foundation. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.11 says that the person of Jesus is the foundation of the church. In Matthew 7.24, it's the teaching of Jesus that is the foundation. Of course, Ephesians 2.20 and Revelation 2.20 2 or 21.14 specifies that it's the apostles. There we go. That's what we like to say. It's the apostles that are the foundation of the church. And then to really throw a curveball in, Hebrews 6.1 says that faith and repentance are the foundation. Understand that a metaphor is used. Qu quit, quit flatlining everything. So the context determines what's being pointed here. And check this out. In these words right here, Peter is described by Jesus using a word play as the foundation on which Christ is going to build his church, thanks to his confession. But like five verses later, you'll see this next week, Peter goes from being a foundational stone to being a stumbling stone based on what he says. And, and, and so that's why we got to see that, that everything that Jesus is going to talk about here hinges and depends upon right confession, which is why so many have sort of rightly said the issue is not so much the man, Peter, as is the confession, and it's this confession that Christ is going to use. And, and that's true, but you can't separate people from their actions completely. So the man is honored for the confession, and I think it's, it's, it's like trying to fight the tide to acknowledge that we see this honoring of Peter in the early church. But Rome's claims are completely rebutted by Scripture. I mean, let's, let's face it. Who, who is, without, almost without exception, the spokesperson for the disciples? Peter, right? I mean, he's, he's clearly the ringleader all the time. He's the 
When Jesus says in the beginning of Acts, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, who is it that's the one to speak and do the first Christian sermon at Pentecost? Peter. And then the, the Spirit is poured out at, at his leadership, which marks the engrafting of the Jews then into the church. And then while he's not the first person to speak to the Sumerians, that's, that's Philip the evangelist, who, who goes up there and is the one who pours out the Spirit upon them and, and, and is able to bear witness that they've been grafted into the church? Peter. Who's the one who goes and first preaches to the Gentiles and pours out the Spirit upon them and then comes back and testifies that they are in fact now part of the body? Peter. But then, to completely rebut the claims of Rome, you see that Peter is not the boss of the Jerusalem church. He's not the Pontifex Maximus. No, he's subordinate to the church. He's sent out by the church. And he reports to the church. He doesn't have the final say in, in key decisions. It's James then. And then he, he disappears from the book of Acts completely by the halfway point. The very... Two chapters ahead, Matthew 18, there's a debate. Who's the greatest? Does Jesus say to them, I just told you. Peter, does Jesus say that? No. So, so understand that this idea, that acknowledging that, that Jesus is honoring the man, that that is somehow implies that he was a pope or, or something, that, that that's, that's, that's nonsense. Furthermore, the authority that we see seemingly Peter being given here, that I will give you the keys of the kingdom, well, that, that, that very phrase is used in Matthew 18, and it's applied to the church. It's a, it's a church function, not an individual function. And so, so what's going on here? And and what does he mean when he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it? And, and we've spent a lot of energy about like the church militant and triumphant will overcome all opposition. Well, sure, Jesus envisions the church surviving to the end, but understand that gates of Hades translates the Hebrew gates of Sheol, which is a common Hebrew idiom for death. So sorry to kick down your post-millennial expectations of nonstop conquest. Jesus is saying not even death can defeat the church. Not even death. And he's about to prove it by conquering death. Okay? The, de the, the death of my people will not stop my movement, my church, So what we see here is Jesus now pivoting, that there's this confession of him as Messiah, and that he's going to build his church upon 
initially the testimony of, of Peter, but that's rapidly going to expand out to be the ministry of the apostles. And this is where we really have to understand what Jesus is doing here. He gave incredible authority to the apostles. It makes us uncomfortable. When he says here in verse 19, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You, you find some people, they, they put a lot of energy. Well, in Matthew here, it's the, the, it's the future passive so that it should say, whatever you bound shall have been bound or whatever you loose shall have been loosed as if Peter all you're allowed to do is, is ratify things that have already been done and that's great and swell except grammatically that's not necessary and in the other passages where this kind of thing takes place that's not what the, the syntax is so for example truly I say to you this is Matthew 18 whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven that is not imperfect. Whatever you loose shall be loosed in heaven. And then here's what he says in John 20, 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, we don't like that. But you got to understand that in Matthew 18, when he links the use of the keys to an activity of the church that's ongoing, what we're seeing is that the apostles had very real authority to bind and loose. And it's the exercise of this authority that Jesus condemns the Pharisees for abusing in such places, for example, as Matthew 21, or, or 23, 13. Uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom in the faces of people. You neither enter yourselves nor allow others who would enter to go in. So there's been an abuse of the keys. That is the, the authority to open and close, the authority to lock and unlock, the authority to govern in the stead of the king. And so we see that Jesus is here when he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. He, he's here envisioning a transition that he's going to do in Matthew 21 when he tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Up to this point, the Lord had allowed the religious establishment to be the governors of the kingdom. That is, the kingdom is the place, the context in which God and his ethics and his values are to reign. But the people who had been set in charge abused it. That's what a great number of the coming, of coming parables are going to be about. And so since they had failed in their task, 
their stewardship role is going to be taken from them and given to someone else. Who, according to here, Peter and the apostles. And that then gets passed down in a derivative manner through all the lawful officers and courts that have been established under the ministry of the apostles. There is not a living person who has the authority of an apostle. But understand that Jesus connects the church with the kingdom and with people in authority to admit and to expel and to govern. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but Jesus loves his church. He loves his people so much that he's brought them into a kingdom together. He's made us a kingdom and he has set over us officers to nurture and care for our souls. And we are to honor, we are to indeed hold accountable, but in everything we are to order ourselves in a manner that is reflective of the fact that Jesus is Lord And in his lordship, he's established this. So the first question is, who do you say Jesus is? The second question is, since he's established the church and he's connected it with the kingdom and he's set keys in use, how seriously do you take all this? How seriously? Do you understand and see that, that when he appointed this church and he brought you here, he was placing you in a family and, and he wants us to be doing something. This isn't just a place to, I don't know, sit for an hour and a half on a Sunday. He wants us to be discipled and discipling. He wants our faith to grow and to be worked out. He wants us to, to fellowship truly with one another and so that we, we, we rub the rough edges off one another. He wants us to be beacons to this world around us. So take this all seriously because Christ has appointed it and he's our king. And we would do well to honor the church that he has established. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. Jesus, we thank you for having the authority to give keys to a kingdom. We thank you for the gift of the apostles and their foundational role in in erecting this kingdom on earth, this church with you, O Lord, as the chief cornerstone. Grant that we would be faithful stewards of it. That we would not, as officers, shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That we would not be overly strict or or overly lenient even. That we would maintain good order and discipline. Characterized by the happy benevolence of our Father. But grant that we would take seriously your visible kingdom, the church, here on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.